Good morning, good evening, wherever you are across the world and the universe. Welcome to Quantum Living, a mysterious dimension at the intersection of science and spirituality, where anything can happen. I'm your host, Anna Anderson. Thank you for joining me on this quantum journey as I continue lifting the veil of other dimensions and realities to make them a part of our life. As always, please take away from the show only what resonates with you and discard the rest or put it aside for later. I hope you will enjoy today's episode. Okay, let's begin. Hello and welcome to yet another fascinating episode of Quantum Living. Before I introduce today's topic and my guest, I would like to make a special announcement about my brand new guided theta meditation album, Cosmology, with three wonderful meditations, Abundance, Soul Journey and Healing. My theta meditations are, of course, transcendental meditations designed to induce an altered state of consciousness, a theta state in which they will guide you through some amazing and profound experiences. This cosmology album is unusual, as each meditation is a one-of-a-kind blend of guided meditation and spiritual channeled guidance, with something useful to learn, offering a unique and profound experience. You will find them on my main website at quantumliving.com.au. And I would also like to offer a special discount on this album exclusively to my podcast audience. Simply enter in the card the coupon code COSMO10. That's C-O-S-M-O-1-0. COSMO10. To take advantage of it. I will also include this promo code in the show notes. Now back to today's topic. When I say about an episode that is fascinating, I really mean it. <laughs> Near-death experience is a topic that is both intriguing and controversial, sitting right at the intersection of science and spirituality. People who have had an NDE and obviously came back are often viewed with a sort of reverence and admiration as those who escape death and came back from the other side. People like Anita Mujani, Dr. Ibn Alexander, and many others. How do we know whether their experience was real or imagined? Well, we don't. But with the growing evidence of the afterlife, or life between lives, recounted by thousands of people under hypnosis, even those who did not have an NDE, the similarities, the patterns, as much as differences in those experiences tip the scales to the truth about this mysterious dimension of our existence. I wanted to interview an NDE survivor for a long time, and the universe has finally obliged, connecting me with someone who has had not one, not two, but three near-death experiences in his life and is happy to talk about them. Robert Kopecki is an award-winning Manhattan illustrator, art director, 
and animation designer whose rich and adventurous life was changed forever by three separate and dramatic near-death experiences he was not prepared for. Those NDEs eventually led Robert to years of spiritual studies, meditation and profound insights into the nature of life and this reality, which he shares in his blog, essays, books and other numerous writings published over the past 11 years. Robert was a keynote speaker at the 2016, 2018 and 2021 Explore the Extraordinary Conferences of the International Association for Near-Death Studies, as well as at the Wisdom of the Near-Death Experience Symposium at the Edgar Cayce Association for Research and Enlightenment, and a number of other speaking events. Robert currently lives with his wife, Sue Pike, in Palm Springs, California, from where he joins me now. Hello, Robert. Welcome to Quantum Living. It's so great to see you. Thank you for coming on my show. Hello, Anna. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for asking me. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Robert. I can't wait to dive into our conversation, and we have so much to talk about. So to begin with, could you please share with us a little bit about your life before your NDEs, just to give us some context? Sure. Yeah. I'm, um, I, they did have, it did have obviously something to do with the content of my near death experiences, because as you'll, as you'll learn from my take on the whole thing, um, our NDEs are sort of based on our life karma. I was born in San Diego, California on the outskirts of, uh, of town and raised in kind of a difficult situation. Um, my father was a little crazy and, uh, Home life was always a little uh, um, upset, and I began to travel quite a bit as soon as I could when I was a kid. I got heavily involved in martial arts, and so I had some experience meditating and some understanding of of um, qi or chi forces that are sort mm-hmm. of uh, you know uh, alternative, so to speak. Um, and um, I was traveling and doing kind of fairly adult type work, living a fairly adult lifestyle by the time I was just 17 or so, 17 or 18 years old Mm -hmm. and started. um, I discovered that uh, the best way for me to make money was with this, um, this skill that I'd inherited as an artist. I was able to always draw. I never had to learn how to draw. And uh, no matter how much I tried to avoid uh, having to do that as a, as a, way to make money. It did end up just making the most sense. So I, I, uh, I ended up going to a school called Art Center College in Pasadena, which is a, a pretty well-known um, art and design institution. And I didn't graduate from there, but I did uh, get hired by an animation company in Los Angeles and started uh, producing mostly fairly high-level commercials and the like at that point, doing mm-hmm. artwork and design work uh, for them. Um, so I had kind of a tumultuous, uh, tumultuous life, um, but, um, it became pretty professional pretty early. Um, I was open to, uh, unusual things because I'd had some sort of unusual experiences during that first part of my life that, that made me maybe a little more accepting of, of things that might be outside of the norm. Um, 
I got married when I was quite young for the first time. And at a point after a number of years, my, my wife and I at the time decided to, uh, to stop working and travel around the world for a year. Okay. Um, which we did. And even though neither of us were spiritual uh, people at the time, curiously, just about everything we did now in retrospect was, was pretty spiritual because we were going to lots of cathedrals and ruins and temples. So we explored the Mayan underworld before that was a, mm-hmm. a popular ecotourist thing to do, you know. <laughs> uh, we looked for tiki in the South Pacific and went to Buddhist temples in Thailand and, and uh, all of this kind of stuff that in retrospect was really quite, really quite uh, spiritual in nature, uh, but didn't really uh, do that for me at that time. It wasn't until some years later that it all gained so much more significance to me. Mm. Interesting. Thank you for sharing. So this is a very nice segue to a brief overview I might ask you to give us of your three separate NDE experiences. And then we'll just start talking about it because there is so much that has come out of them. So I would like to set the scene, if you like, if you could just go through those three experiences for us. Sure. Yeah, I'll give you kind of a little maybe briefer version of them so that we can dive deeper into some of the aspects of them as you see fit. Sure. Um, but the first one I was living, my wife and I were living, my wife at the time and I were living in Los Angeles. I was extremely busy in those days. I was teaching and art directing a major newspaper and designing stuff for Hollywood and the like, mm-hmm. doing illustrations for all kinds of people and stuff. And uh, my wife um, headed out to uh, go visit an aunt in Arizona, and I took her to the airport. And on my way back home, I drove through kind of a, a um, unfamiliar neighborhood to me. And it was dusk. And as I was driving through, I expected the road to be straight, like all the other roads that cut through the same area. Um, and I, to tell you when this happened, I had a malfunction with my cassette deck in my car. Right. Mm. <laughs> it, uh, you know what? Back in those days, uh, it, something would happen, something would go wrong with your cassette deck, and it would make this tape being eaten sound kind of this yeah. dreaded sort of sound of the tape yeah. <laughs> functioning. And I, I, I reached over and popped it out. And when I pulled the cassette out, there was a long piece of tape that was stuck in the mechanism. And without realizing it, there was a jog in this street and I glanced off of a car that was kind of sticking out from a driveway and went straight into a telephone pole. I was going probably uh, 35 miles an hour or so, maybe something around there, smash into the telephone pole. <clears throat> and I had a uh, harness on, a seatbelt, but I did manage to break the steering wheel with uh, my face, unfortunately, and I broke out the windshield with my head. Uh, too. Mm. In the very next instant, I found myself at the top of the telephone pole, looking down at the scene. The car crashed into the telephone pole and kind of crumpled up and steam coming out of it and fluid running onto the ground. Uh, I could look over. um, I was in this typical neighborhood kind of. I could look over the trees and the hedges and stuff into people's yards. 
And I saw lights going on because it was dusk. It was getting dark. I saw lights going on on porches and people starting to come out of their houses because they'd heard the crash. And looking down, I noticed that there was an arm hanging out of the driver's side window of the car. And at that point, I really realized that it was my car and that, in fact, it was my arm. Mm. And I started to um, associate then with really where I was and what was happening. I realized uh, that I was not in my body and, in fact, began to experience this powerful sense of kind of a transcendent unity or like being enfolded in grace, you know, and kind of like a warm, and you'll hear a lot of near-death experiencers talk about this, this this kind of warm enfolding of you in this um, kind of seamless intellect, this seamless mind, sort of transcendent unity and not cognizant whatsoever of any of the pain or difficulty going on. Okay. Uh, Feeling completely liberated, uh, so to speak. And I could move. And now I don't remember having a body or a body form at all, but obviously I could see. (laughs) So I tried to move down towards the people that were coming around, um, around the crash and calling for an ad. They were calling for an ambulance and stuff. And I tried to talk to them, but I couldn't, they couldn't hear me. At that same point, I, I felt unmistakably the presence of someone behind me. I never had the urge to turn around and introduce myself. I just had this <laughs> feeling like I was being shepherded, mm-hmm. so to speak. And this uh, voice, kind of this personage or that I think of as a guardian angel of sorts now, kind of directed me. Um, and when it became clear that I couldn't uh, communicate with anybody, and the ambulance arrived, and they started to put me into the ambulance. I was ushered off. I was kind of told that it was time to to leave. And so I drifted into what I only recall as being a a warm gray cloud bank. Um, and you, and I just want to point out that I, I don't change the nature of my descriptions of this. This is exactly as I remember it being, and so. Mm-hmm. I try not to go back and add lots of lots of uh, additions to it, even though I may have had some, because I want to keep the um, I want to keep the the moments as uh, real and as clear as they were. Mm-hmm. Um, I add more to it later on, and naturally, as I come to more realizations yeah. about it. But I was ushered to, uh, through this kind of cloud bank to a place that was um, beautiful, like a pastoral green sort of like a park type of a setting. Um, and there were other entities there. I can't really remember. I, you know, I try to remember them kind of as being human forms, but actually I don't really remember that being true. Just the knowledge and understanding that there were these other entities around and that there was this entity that was across from me, that was sitting with me and that we were having this kind of a, a conversation mm-hmm. I do not remember the details of the conversation, but I do remember that it was important, that it was engrossing. And and, uh, I continued to feel uh, nothing but uh, warmth and love and this kind of ease of being, you know, a kind of a general lack of boundaries, too, with my thinking. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, my thinking was no longer of a serial nature, one thing to the next, but all kinds of things were in my course of thought together simultaneously, so to speak. It went on like that for an unspecified amount of time. I'm not sure exactly how long, but I came to in a hospital about 18 hours later or so Mm -hmm. with a nurse in the room. I was hooked up to the typical kind of machinery and stuff there. My head was heavily bandaged. And um, that was was the first one. And I just want to add that... um, I tried to tell my wife about it. She returned from her trip after she'd heard about the accident. And I tried to tell her about that experience, but uh, she just kind of nodded, you know, and, and when I told other people about it, they, I got the same kind of uh, response from them. People were sort of like, oh, okay, <laughs> great. You know, that kind of thing. And so I really sort of dropped it. I kind of dropped it and, began, I think, to actively sort of suppress it, actually, because it did not fit into my life. And I didn't know of any kind of um, groups of people that had had similar experiences at all. I did go back to the scene of the accident a few weeks later, and I walked around and looked at the ground level and the telephone pole that it had happened to, And I could see that the things that I could see from the top of the pole were the same. I I confirmed the things that I saw when I was that high up. I'd look around a hedge and it would be as I had seen it. So I did confirm to myself that I'd been at the top of that telephone pole. Wow. And then I just went on, I just went on with my life then, my very busy life. Did you have a choice or do you remember having a choice to come back or not to come back? I do not remember having a choice. Okay. I don't remember that at all. In fact, the, it, the, that whole scenario uh, sort of ended the, just basically the way that I told you. I really do not remember exactly mm-hmm. what happened or when it ended. Mm-hmm. I just woke up. Okay, beautiful. And then when was the second one? What happened? Uh, the second one was uh, some years later. I, uh, it, actually, um, it actually happened after the trip that I told you about, my first wife and I uh, took. We uh, traveled around the world, as I said, for a long time, and we resettled in San Francisco, uh, California. And I, again, was uh, very busy professionally there. And um, I got a phone call from my cousin that my aunt, uh, something, that something terrible had happened to my aunt during the course of a, a procedure she had in a doctor's office. And she had had what amounted to a major life-ending stroke. Um, and she had been very, very important to me because during this sort of tumultuous childhood years, she'd been somebody who would come and kind of rescue me and we would travel together and stuff. And so she was a, she was a real life compadre of mine. Yeah. And uh, I got in my car and I drove over and she was uh, dead, basically. She had no life function. Uh, And my cousin and his wife were there and they were in tears and the doctor was nervous. And 
I have this sense of her being there very powerfully, of her being mm-hmm. there. And I, I only uh, um, begin telling this story um, because that experience set me into kind of a, um, it kind of knocked me out of my tracks. I was, I was trying to live at like a normal person and be a professional and get back into normal life with my wife after this long trip. And then this thing happened. And it upset my my uh, basket so much uh, that I, I ended up uh, coming to odds with my wife. I left San Francisco alone, and I moved to New York City. And I began to live a, a fairly extreme lifestyle. I was I, I knew that I would always do well there professionally. I did very well professionally almost immediately. But I began to live the kind of life that one can only live in a major cosmopolitan city, which was largely nocturnal, mm-hmm. that kind of a, the downtown art scene. Late at night, I didn't sleep that much. I was a freelance at that time, a freelance illustrator. So there was a lot of uh, free and not that much Lance, <laughs> although I was very busy all the time. Uh, and, you know, I, I uh, just overdid it. I fell into substance abuse and into uh, all kinds of sort of strange scenes. At one point, then I was leaving a party that I'd begun to feel very poorly at. And I was not far from my home and I was trying to get home. I was struggling to get home. I felt like I was passing out the whole time. And when I finally got into the door to my apartment with, uh, with my girlfriend at the time, that I collapsed on the floor of the apartment and I went numb uh, from the neck down. Basically, I, I couldn't really move. I suffered this kind of paralysis wow. and my head was propped up against the exposed brick wall in, in my Chelsea apartment and uh, looking into the up into the room with my girlfriend there um, gesturing because she was upset and worried. Her voice kind of faded away and the room filled in with a kind of a brilliant white cloud. Wow. So it was though I were transported uh, sort of extra dimensionally because I, I didn't leave. I was laying down, but I was in the middle of this brilliant, radiant white cloud. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, I had uh, somebody behind me, the sense of somebody being behind me again. And uh, this voice directed me to look in a particular direction to my, towards my left, kind of in this cloud. Everything of reality was gone at that point. I was in this completely other reality. And a kind of a screen opened up or a space where there uh, began to be played scenes from my mm-hmm. life. Um, not like on a screen, but like boxes of time, kind of like boxes of experience, three-dimensional that I could sort of hover into and kind of reach mm-hmm. into even. I couldn't change anything. I just witnessed uh, these scenes and they were, um, they were not, um, they were not good moments. <laughs> they were not celebrations of, of, <laughs> of victories or achievements or anything. They were more like the, this kind of seminal moments right. that uh, one has in retrospect where you realize maybe you had, um, hurt somebody when you didn't know that you had, or you had missed a great opportunity that you just didn't understand that it, that's mm-hmm. what was staring you in the face at that moment. I think of it, I re- recall it as having been 
maybe five or six kind of serially of these moments, some of which I've kind of remembered uh, since then, that I don't know if that's something that I have imagined since. Uh, At the time, I did not remember exactly what the content of these scenes were. It sent me into this kind of uh, a place of sort of a deep self-examination, sort of. The realization that I maybe was not the person that I had thought I was, and that in these moments, something very important had been going on, that that my personal self-centeredness had just rolled right through without even noticing, you know, that my consciousness was not really present. I was not really present for these moments. Um, after a while of this, I started to hear my girlfriend again. And the, the whole scene kind of started to fade. And the aspects of the room that I was in started to kind of come through it, arise through this cloud, so to speak. And as it faded out, then I was in this very harsh and kind of uh, painful uh, circumstance with this really upset person uh, kind of shouting. And, you know, I started to be able to speak and to say that I was going to be okay and not to call an ambulance and that kind of thing. And it took me, it took me about 45 minutes or so to really be able to, to kind of stand up again, I think, you know? Um, So that was the the second one, which was this kind of uh, life. The first one was an out of body, they call it. This one was a life review, uh, they call uh, they call that kind of type of NDE. Uh, so that was the second one. And I changed everything in my life, you know, immediately. I gave up my apartment. I broke up with my girlfriend. I moved to the Southwest. I began snowboarding between New York City and uh, the Phoenix, Arizona area, kind of close to where I'd come from, and um, started living a, another different kind of life. Learn more about quantum living, a cutting-edge approach to self-empowerment and emotional freedom at the intersection of science and spirituality. It is the master key to understanding how life works and gives you many tools and strategies to change your life experiences. Whether dealing with emotional addictions, relationship issues, self-sabotage blocking the progress and achievement in your life, or any other challenge, Quantum Living is the space you want to be in. My Quantum Living coaching program is as psychological, spiritual, and esoteric as it is educational and practical. In the advanced stage of the program, I will take you on a quantum soul journey in a deep theta state to other dimensions and realities, which is an amazing and profound experience. I also invite you to sign up for Quantum Talk, my free monthly newsletter with a blog, updates and special offers. When you do, you will instantly receive a download copy of my book, The Seven Keys to Quantum Communication, absolutely free. To book your free diagnostic session and receive your free book, visit quantumliving.com.au today. You'll be glad you did. Okay, but that wasn't the end of it. There was one more coming up.
There was one more, yes, after a number of years of, of doing this, kind of going back and forth across country. <clears throat> I had met and become involved with uh, another woman that I, I, I had flown out uh, at a moment's notice after a couple of years of dating her and uh, asked her to marry me. And she was baking one night before, uh, before we were going to get married. And it was a Super Bowl Sunday. And I was in this town. It was a university town, a big, big college town. And I was with some friends watching the Super Bowl at a sports bar. And I left after the game and went out. And this will tell you again how long ago this was, because this was about 1997 or so. I made a phone call on a payphone, you know, which you don't see very many payphones even now, um, to my uh, girlfriend to tell her, you know, what was going on. And I was assaulted while I was on the phone by this great big kid with a shaved head and big boots that, you know, skin, like a skinhead, like a neo-Nazi mm-hmm. skinhead type kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, he started to harass me while I was on the phone and he reached in and he hung up the phone while I was in mid conversation with my girlfriend. I stopped and I kind of calmed him down a little bit. Now, I had just come back to Arizona from New York, and so I looked kind of urbane, I think, for the surroundings. Mm-hmm. I was maybe dressed a little bit better. And, <laughs> and uh, he went away. And then I got back on the phone with my girlfriend to tell her what had just happened, and he came back. But he came back much more aggressively, and he started to really accost me. And he was shouting things in my face about me being gay and stuff like that, which I'm not, but that's what apparently the impression that he had in his inebriated mind because he was quite drunk. Mm -hmm. And uh, he started to push me really forcefully. And then I made a great mistake that I wish I could take back to this day. I fell back on my martial arts training and I planted my back foot Mm. and I punched him right on the chin, just a straight punch right on his chin. And he just teetered over like a tree, like, you know, like timber, you know, just went Mm -hmm. crashing down straight back. And people around me in this, uh, in this little uh, quadrangle in this shopping center applauded because they had witnessed the whole thing. They were like, good for you, man. You know, it's just the way to handle that guy kind of thing. Um, I wasn't so sure. And so I made good my escape. I started to leave immediately. And I had ridden a bike. I got on the bike and I was riding home. And I didn't realize that there had been a van full of these skinheads that had watched me punch their friend. And so they followed me in the van and drove up alongside of me while I was riding my bicycle and hit me in the back of the head with a crowbar or a tire iron, something like that. And that sent me headfirst into a curb. And I was out. And as I recall, um, almost immediately in another dimension again, in another place, not as heavenly, not pastoral or or radiant in any way, but kind of um, womb-like, almost sort of subterranean. And I was surrounded by entities. There were a number, I would say, six or thereabouts kind of in my mind. Again, I don't have distinct memories of exactly what they looked like or who they were, anything like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And 
I could kind of sense that something terrible was going on outside or in the next room or something. Well, this, the skinheads were stomping and kicking me while I was unconscious. And that went on for over an hour. Wow. Um, and so I got lots of broken bones and stuff like that. It was my, my worst near death experience. If, if one's going to have such a thing. Um, wow. And I, they started telling me these entities started telling me that I had to go back. And I did not want to. This is a case where I had some, I thought I had some choice, but I didn't have a choice then. Okay. Because I insisted on staying and they insisted on me going back. Wow. And the next thing I knew, or as I recall it, I was lifted up. I had a little more sense of sort of being in a body form in this one. I was lifted up on a whole bunch of hands and kind of pushed through a membrane, Mm. kind of popped popped through a membrane forced through and when i popped through i opened my eyes and i was laying on my back on the street with an emergency medical worker over me and he looked up and said he's back and there were other medical emergency people there and i they backed me up and uh, took me to a nearby hospital and just checked me into the emergency room i wasn't checked into a room or anything um, I had broken ribs and a severely separated shoulder and a, a kind of a bashed head. Mm. The, the, um, I got stitched up. I got my head stitched up. And then they sent me home. <laughs> that, um, that being forced to return to this world uh, then was my, my third and hopefully my final near-death experience. <laughs> Gosh, extraordinary experiences. But I am curious, obviously, the events leading to those NDEs were very traumatic, and they were increasingly so. We wouldn't want to experience these sort of events. But looking at the NDEs in themselves, which one of them would you say was most profound, if I can put it this way? You know, they were, they, they were all pretty similar in that regard in terms of their profundity, their importance. Um, you know, in the first one, when I experienced being out of my body that way and looking down on life as a, as a detached witness to it, it, while that didn't change my life a great deal because I kind of had to suppress it and stuff, you know, it is hard, I like to say, to get the genie back in the bottle after that. So I did walk around feeling somewhat different in my life uh, after that. This, the second one, then, with that, uh, the lesson of, you know, how important the moment is in this aspect of living in an eternal moment, like we're occupying right now, like we always occupy. Um, th- then that had a, a great deal of significance uh, to me, uh, too. But it really wasn't until the third one that I had um, had this kind of recognition <laughs> that these these experiences had done something in my life. And it really was about a year or two later 
uh, from my, after my my third one because um, I ended up getting married and that didn't last. My life did not was not going well. I couldn't uh, kind of get back in step with things at all. Uh, the marriage was probably a, a mistake overall, and we split up. And I went back to New York City and kind of tried to regain my life and my foothold on re- on reality, as it were. And I was a witness to 9-11. I was downtown when uh, the planes hit the World Trade Center. And I began to have this kind of spontaneous, almost, uh, I would call it a paranormal kind of experience of it, because I had a great sense of there being disembodied spirits, almost like almost like a cyclone of disembodied spirits kind of rushing around. And I had this sense wandering through the smoky streets downtown. It was very surreal for everyone. So I don't know what everybody else was experiencing, but I started to kind of realize, I think that, that, you know, that I'd had these things happen to me in my life and that I was possibly engaging in this moment in a slightly different way. Um, very shortly after that, I just, by sort of being led, I got a small house on the Upper Delaware River, right on this uh, small section of the Upper Delaware River in Pennsylvania with New York right on the other side. And I, my life changed. It's, mm-hmm. uh, that's when I started suddenly becoming interested in scripture and philosophy and physics, quantum physics, and the like, uh, all these different subjects I had never really been that interested in before. I began a meditation practice and uh, ended up sitting for thousands of hours on a rock by the river. I know it sounds like a cliche, Mm. but I I did. (laughs) And uh, that was where I started to to kind of change my life direction because I had a blog that I posted animation design on. And I started spontaneously writing these uh, sort of spiritual essays and I would post them on my um, animation blog and they became popular. Mm-hmm. And I started getting contacted by uh, spiritual websites and individuals who were interested in all this kind of stuff. Mm. And um, I had this uh, a kind of a impulse to uh, write uh, something more uh, complete. And within just a couple of weeks, I had written the manuscript to my first book, How to Survive Life and Death. I just had this incredible experience where suddenly it was being published even. you know, the, All of it happened in a very crazy, sort of spontaneous, magical way. So obviously one thing led to another, but it did take you some time after the third experience to start talking about it and writing about it so so it wasn't it wasn't immediate so let's now talk about your books and your writing because that's where i feel perhaps the purpose of those three near death experiences in your life came out because i have to say i have read your two books how to survive life after death and how to get to heaven without dying. What I would like to say is, and I don't do this very often, every so often I recommend books which I believe offer value, are a good read. But those two books I put in the category of 
a must read. They are not only very well written, but I have to say that the the content and the insight you have captured in those books is extraordinary. It is profound. It is touching. And um, I believe I may have mentioned this to you when we spoke before this recording, that I have a, a distinct sense of you as a soul, as a being, walking sort of one foot in this world and, and the other foot in, in the other world. So there is a sense of your connection, if you like, quite strongly. Maybe not everyone can perceive it, but I certainly can. So uh, we will talk more, obviously, about those books, and I will include the links to them where people can purchase them in the show notes because I, I highly, highly recommend them. But before we start talking about the material in those books, I would like to ask another broad question on the tail of your recount of those three experiences. What do you feel is the purpose of NDE, broadly speaking? What is the purpose of NDE? You know, I am not really sure. I mean, unlike some experiencers, I I didn't come back from those three experiences with a great sense of exactly what is actually going on here. <laughs> you know, I understand that we mm-hmm. that we are participating in a profound kind of spiritual technology that occurs uh, in different dimensions uh, simultaneously. Um, when people uh, have these things happen, as I did, that are near death, you don't actually die. So you come back and you have to uh, find the words to try to describe them. I feel that we are very limited by the form that we're in, that as human beings, that we can only talk about it. You know, we can only use these words to tell you. And, and then we rely on our memories of them, which, as I mentioned before, there are highly unreliable, uh, many of our memories. And it can likewise be uh, just created out of whole cloth by our pathologies, so to speak. But the, um, the, the ex- experiences themselves, what became clear to me after having had these three, uh, is that there are generally, uh, there are generally things about them that are uh, always the same, you know, there's, there's always a, um, there's always some kind of radiance that goes on. There's very, very often a sense of being enfolded in love, mm-hmm. but there's always something instructive of an instructive nature mm-hmm. to them. There's um, a sense of renewal uh, with them always. So would it be fair to say that the purpose is strictly individual? Yes, that would be my point is that they're all custom made. Mm -hmm. They are all custom made to the individual, even the ones that have something uh, shared, like the light at the end of the tunnel Mm -hmm. uh, or or people, motifs that are shared motifs, meeting uh, meeting your relatives in sort of an Elysian field is another typical kind of one, you know. But also the outcomes are very individual because different people may need different prompt different lesson, different different insight, different guidance that they needed at the time. 
Exactly. And they are the result of where that person was in their life. uh, Mine certainly were. I was this package of this kind of karmic data, so to speak, the product Mm -hmm. of my genes and my upbringing, Mm -hmm. the experiences that I'd had in my life. And then these things happened. And that place where I was, that data that I carried into you know, the next world as it, as it was, mm-hmm. then I feel reflected back to me in these forms and experiences that I had. So in my, in my first one where I had the out of body experience, I was taught this lesson that we really are spiritual passengers in physical bodies and material bodies and material form in this material plane. Right. Mm-hmm. And that it's part of a much larger thing that we can't see this invisible machinery of the greater spiritual being. Mm. Um, and so I got that, that lesson of perspective where I can live in two worlds. I can detach myself consciously at times from the material circumstances in the situation. If things not are, people are arguing or something, I do have the ability to sort of arise above it and witness their need to express what they need to express through these limited physical forms that we have here as humans, right? And so I call that the gift of perspective uh, Mm -hmm. from that that first one. Mm -hmm. From the the second one, then, as I've mentioned, I, you know, I had this understanding of living in the moment that whether I was quote unquote dead or having a near death experience or right now, um, I was always alive now. I was always in this moment. Mm-hmm. And we always are. And this moment is the place where we can have an effect, where we can uh, be present for those aspects of our life that sort of fill in uh, this karmic profile that we're developing, that we're evolving. And so right now is when I can deal with my bad karma. It's when I can create my good karma. You know, it all happens in this moment and always will. I call it the eternal moment. Mm -hmm. And I call that the gift of presence is what I got from that second one. And then in the last one where you ask what the purpose is of near-death experience, well, the purpose of my third near-death experience was to give me the gift of purpose. I was, I, was, I was told that I had to come back because I wasn't done. Right. Well, I'm not done doing what? <laughs> then was kind of the question because I came back and I was pretty befuddled at that time. Mm. I, had, um, I experienced a kind of an ego death where everything that I thought I was kind of fell apart. Uh, everything I thought I was supposed to be sort of wasn't true anymore. And like I said, I I got back to New York and I was able to make things work and to be successful professionally again, but I was not really jiving with my life. I wasn't aligned with life. Mm -hmm. And I had that 9-11 experience. And it wasn't until I meditated a lot, basically, Mm. that all of these things coalesced into, into me. And this sense of purpose arose that my life is nothing all that 
special, even though I imagine, I used to imagine myself as a movie star, kind of walking around my own movie mm. myself, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing, striding through the airport, being important <laughs> and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And I realized none of that was true, but that, um, that it was uh, nonetheless really important for me mm. that in terms of my package of karma, regardless of how mundane or average some of these things may mm-hmm. be. Um, you know, my wife and I moved from New York City after 30 odd years. This is my third wife mm-hmm. and hopefully my final wife. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we moved back to, to Southern California and I could be present uh, for my mom when she went through a, um, a battle of cancer recently. Well, all kinds of people out there who hear me tell that story have stories like that of their own. And you can feel as though a life is not being fair to you or it's not turning out the way that you wanted it to, but this is how it's supposed to be. And you do have the opportunity to be here for this. Mm. And when you can energize it that way, you know that Only you are bringing what's necessary to completing this particular circle in your life. Then that purpose, that sense of purpose uh, becomes less uh, something that you were wishing for and more of what you authentically are, right? In each moment and with the perspective of being a spirit riding around in this world. Would you like to learn how to meditate in Theta, the optimum frequency you can have in a meditative state? By popular demand, I have created an instructional Theta meditation package containing a guided audio meditation and an introduction booklet. It is a unique, one-of-a-kind resource that will help you achieve and maintain the elusive Theta state throughout your meditation and will give you the important background information about Theta Meditation and this process. For more details, please go to the store on my website at quantumliving.com.au Absolutely. And you speak beautifully in your books to those three key lessons that you have learned from your NDEs, perspective, presence, and purpose. Speaking more broadly about your books, do they contain material that is your own thoughts and reflections and insights, or do they also contain material we might call channeled? That's an interesting question. And I would say the easy answer to it is both, of course, you know, there's sort of a Zen answer to it. It it, it all is. So that is what it all is. Um, I'm interested in it because I've, you know, I've lived my whole life as a creative person. And so the act of creation to me seems very channeled a lot of the time. You know, when I'm when I'm doing artwork to uh, solve some kind of a problem or to illustrate some mm-hmm. kind of a story or something, I consider myself being kind of like a transistor radio uh, in the windowsill. You know, if I 
have things just right, the signal comes in great. <laughs> uh, you know, if I drink my tea beforehand and I have my favorite music on and it's nice and quiet in the morning, you know, that. And so I try to recreate those circumstances so that I can channel uh, the, the best solution. The first book, um, How to Survive Life and Death, I think was pretty channeled because, like I said, I was literally sitting on a rock mm. at the river and I was in a meditative state where I, uh, kind of a, a Bodhi state where my, uh, my mind was completely still and I entered into this um, sort of a Gnostic, a kind of a moment of Gnosis um, where everything fell away from around me and I ex experienced transcendent unity. And um, I was completely uh, whole, I felt. And I started getting these um, specific things to say about death and dying. And so the, the first book then uh, came to me just in a couple of weeks. Uh, I wrote 90 pages or so in the, just a week or two, mostly about uh, death and dying and uh, the idea that we uh, aren't that we have to die mm -hmm. and that we die in many different ways in this life and that we were alive but before not really we're dying. Yeah. Not really. No, but I mean, you really do. If you lose somebody who's very important in your life, um, if you lose a job or a home or something like that, there are these changes that amount to these kinds of deaths um, that force us to, uh, you know, reconfigure everything. They force us back to a place of sort of absolute humility where you kind of have to start over again, only uh, this time mitigated by more authenticity, more of who you really are. And so that, that message uh, really came through for the first book. And so the first book, I like to say, is the most fun you'll ever have reading about dying. <laughs> you know? Because it really is a book that's designed to help people ameliorate their fears around mm. death and dying. And um, I'd never had any kind of impulse to try to help people with a subject like that. It never occurred to mm -hmm. me. Uh, but after that one month or so or where it first uh, came up and I set it down, um, then that became really the vehicle uh, for my speaking and um also helping people directly, individuals, which I mm -hmm. consider as important as having a book out, um, spending time with someone like you if you had a circumstance that was difficult for you. To me, mm -hmm. that's just as important uh, as speaking to a conference or something. Mm, beautiful. You said in your book, life was living me, not the other way around. I simply existed to express the life I was given. That was one of your your realizations. Now, this implies that we are merely a tool for the divine will or a computer playing the inserted program with no say about its content. Doesn't this view reduce the value of our free will and our birthright as an incarnated soul to consciously create the life that we want? How does it sit with it? 
Um, yes, I agree. I agree completely that that would diminish that. And I don't think that that's entirely what I had intended in context, but I understand uh, that, that kind of concern. I think that I was probably paraphrasing Joseph Campbell with the first part, because um, he, he was a big influence uh, with me early on in my sort of spiritual path. And I recall him having said that life lives us. The, the thing that the three near-death experiences demonstrated to me definitively was that uh, I am an expression of what I call divine consciousness. Everything is an expression of divine consciousness. And divine consciousness is filtering through this package that is me. And so I have these things that I need to express that come from my genes, my experiences, the talents I've been given, the experiences I've had, etc. And uh, divine consciousness issues through me, flows around me. Do you have free will? Um, yes, of course. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about with presence, where in this moment, I have an opportunity to address my karma and the creation of my karma and even the possible manifestation, so to speak, you hear a lot of people talking about of being able to reach into this box of time that I'm living in and form things based on uh, what divine consciousness is telling me and what my direction is being shown to me as. Um, that's always a really interesting question, right? Because it's matrix-like. There is, I do believe that we're part of sort of a matrix of loving intelligence. I believe that. I do believe that we have free will, will and it's very important for us to uh, to engage it, um, and that probably multiple lifetimes reincarnation is what's going on. And if we are not engaging our free will, right, we will have to eventually, you know, <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. Um, mm. So it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of all of it. Uh, again, in that uh, in that uh, Zen sense, um, yeah, I have free will, and I'm I'm a, I'm being I'm being lived through by divine consciousness. Mm. So, could we say perhaps that uh, that divine will, the divine consciousness that wants to express itself through us as an individual? incarnated soul fragment is our blueprint, our destiny, with which we may or may not choose to engage? Yes. Yeah. And, I, you know, I do believe that it depends upon what kinds of life experiences you've had and what your package of karma is, uh, so to speak, because there are a lot of things happening to me, like each moment that I saw in my second near-death experience those things had happened to me through my life and I had not noticed. I was not, I was not adequately conscious in each of those moments to have recognized what was going on. And so it depends on where we are in our life, what we're able to, uh, to understand and then to be able to, um, to respond to it. I mean, if you have awareness, then you respond to things in a different way. Uh, than when you're obviously than when you're not aware of it when you when you don't understand the significance of what's happening around you 
Mm. Uh, whether that uh, requires multiple life lives to get to that point or something, I don't know. <laughs> but I really, I really appreciate ancient templates that describe what we're talking about, like uh, the Gnostics, for example, the, the the Gnostic myth of Sophia, who is uh, commingled with her twin in heaven uh, with God the Father. And at one point sees the brilliant light of God below her and not realizing that it's merely a reflection in a puddle of water. She throws herself down into this lower realm, right? Which is our earth. Mm-hmm. She gets mixed up with these archons, these bad boy demiurges, you know, one of them is the God of this world. And she's kind of like drugged down and has to, then work her way back up through these layers of being until she's reunited with this heavenly brilliance, with the fullness of heavenly heavenly mm-hmm. brilliance, back into her, you know, so to speak, her father's uh, home, right, the source. Back into source again, and bringing up humanity mm-hmm. with it. This is the beautiful thing about the feminine divine, right? Is that the feminine divine is raising the consciousness of the whole temporal world up with it as it ascends. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm a big fan of feminism, you know, mm. and I find great difficulty with my own men's club. I, I find that the many of the terrible things that happen in mm-hmm. earth planes are because of men. If any other group of people were responsible for this much madness, there would be a, a great mm. outcry. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, Robert, is there a good way of living to prepare us for the end, for the inevitable passage onto the next chapter of our existence? Yeah, and you know, again, it's just kind of a, kind of a classical approach, you might say. In my second book, How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. Um, I talk about it as rungs on the ladder to heaven. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the concept behind that book is that everybody has experienced a little piece of heaven at one time or another. So how do you gather that up? How do you keep that right here? How do you create a bubble around you where you experience heaven in this life? Uh, just like I did in my NDEs when I had this sense of transcendent unity and, and uh, So these really are classic uh, principles, uh, kind of that it's based on. That you find that if you take part in, it will change your life and it will direct your life, and it will have a tendency to create this kind of bubble of heaven around you, and then to expand on it so that other people around you are living in it too. And there are simple things that you know about already, like kindness. Honesty, humility, forgiveness, compassion, and service. Yes. You know, and I like to say that imagine what life is like in heaven. You know, you go to the classic heaven where everybody's angels and stuff. And what are they all like? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, they're all extremely kind, right? They're all honest. They're not going to lie to you about stuff to try to get things their way conceal some truth from you. Um, They're humble in that same way that um, 
many of the people that you've met in your life that end up being important have that kind of humility. You know, they're not famous, but they live with a certain something, a certain connection, and they, and a kind of a, a perspective and presence and purpose, you know, that make them special. They're usually they're very humble people. I like to say they they uh, speak softly and carry no shtick. <laughs> um, and so humility then is kind of the um, is kind of which by the way it, it is reflected in your energy in your aura as I said early on when we first uh, spoke before the, even this recording you you really radiate this very calm very balanced very high frequency energy which is so beautiful. And it is reflected in your books. That's why I, once again, I highly, highly recommend um, your two books and, and hopefully the third one, which we will talk about in a, in a moment. But yes, this beautiful presence, this beautiful, very calm, which is both high frequency and at a higher level, but at the same time is very grounded. Oh. Thank you. And I think this is the most beautiful part of it. Thank you so much for that. But like I also like to say is um, just take my advice. Don't follow my example. Yes. <laughs> because uh, what humility I've managed to gain has really been the result of getting my butt kicked badly numerous times, right? <laughs> and having these kinds of deaths kind of take place in my life that, that returns us to this place of absolute humility where what you're supposed to be and who you think you're supposed to be, what's supposed to happen in your life. All of that stuff is, is not consequential. Um, what is, is then finding who you really are when none of those things are present anymore. When you're reduced to this real grounded, basic, authentic mm -hmm. self, uh, then you can use that as um, a touchstone. Um, Any time that I uh, get caught up in things, I can pause and I can reach into that field of being, mm -hmm. that matrix of loving intelligence, and I can ground myself there and recognize that my mind is taking me off in a direction I don't want to be, something like that, you know, and that none of it is all that important and that the evidence is that things are actually quite good in my life so I can get over myself, mm. you know? And so that humility, humility really is the, um, the touchstone of spiritual growth. And I think of uh, living well, you're asking about, you know, ways that we can live well. Um, forgiveness then, uh, it's the kindness, honesty, humility, forgiveness, uh, the ability to recognize that all of us are in this together and we're all doing the same things and we're all experiencing the same experiences and that nobody's doing it completely right. There's a spirituality of mm -hmm. perfection, definitely. And that um, when I let go of, of uh, what I feel, how I feel you've wronged me, then I can seek forgiveness for what I've done wrong too. Mm -hmm. And we can all kind of come together in this share with this shared experience. Um, that leads then to uh, compassion also, which is the recognition of all of life as being sacred. Mm -hmm. And I say that because um, 
I believe strongly in animal rights, mm-hmm. for example, yeah. in the, uh, and the experience that we're having now in this world of being disaligned with nature and with the the um, consciousness of the earth mm-hmm. as a living thing, and that we need to um, recognize the the sort of sovereign, uh, respectful uh, sacredness of every mm-hmm. living thing. So does that mean becoming a vegetarian or a vegan? Yes, it does. And so I, I mm-hmm. highly recommend that. That will change yeah. your life in really positive ways, um, I think. And then the, the, the final uh, rung on the ladder is service. Um, all the trouble starts when I'm thinking about what I need. When I think about what you need and how I can help you, all of that trouble mm-hmm. goes away. And the solution rises up immediately in that moment. I think I heard, uh, oh, I can't remember. Maybe it was Wayne Dyer, who was Mm -hmm. also a a wonderful teacher, I thought, say that uh, when you ask the universe, um, when you keep saying, I need something, Mm -hmm. I need something, I need something, then the universe says back to you, I need something, Mm -hmm. I need something, I need something. And you're always anxious. You're always fitful. You know, you're never whole. You're never happy. But if you say, what can I do for you? What can I bring to this to make it better? What can I do for you? Then the universe says, what can I do for you? Right? Mm -hmm. And then these things begin to happen. Synchronicities uh, begin. Absolutely. And you talk beautifully about these concepts in your books. And when I reflected on this question myself is there a good way of living to prepare for us for the end or what is that good way of living in addition to all those beautiful concepts that you have mentioned I would like to add one more and that is legacy I strongly feel that we should well perhaps should is the wrong word but but that it is desirable and of a higher purpose to have a legacy that we leave behind when we cross over. And it could be children, which we agree that children are our legacy. It could be the books that you have written. It could be the paintings that you have painted. It could be the music. It could be... It could be something that you have built, created, both metaphorically speaking, figuratively speaking, and tangibly. So I feel strongly that legacy, something of of value that we will leave behind, not necessarily to be remembered by, but I'm talking about that contribution right? The purpose that you mentioned. So this is the, pu- the purpose and contribution that will stay on this plane, serving higher purpose to others while we are gone already. Right. Yeah. And that's, I would call that this kind of construction of personal and collective karma. Yes. Beautiful. 
Um, yes, no, I, I agree. You could add that. In fact, there's a lot of things that you could yes. add to <laughs> that list. You know, kindness, yes. honesty, humility, forgiveness, compassion, and service are only six of them. Yeah. But if you hold those things out in front of you proactively as you go about your day, you'll find that you're living in a different world as a result. Yes. You'll find you're part of a deeper system that you would not have recognized if you were just worried about what I need to get, finding a parking place, and I got it, you know, all the stuff that comes up in our life. Mm -hmm. That if you're heading into circumstances with those things out in front of you as best as you possibly can, mm -hmm. you will project this kind of bubble of heaven, so to speak. You know? Yes. And you will, you'll, you can expand it and bring more people into it. And then you discover there's this fabric of kindness and honesty and humility and forgiveness and compassion and service all around you all the time. Absolutely. But I'm going to ask you a more difficult question. Yes. <laughs> we talk about heaven on earth. Why do we quite often need to go through hell to get to heaven? So I'm talking about the harsh experiences, the struggle, the suffering, the pain that most people, I would say, go through in their lives to often get to a point of peace and happiness and tranquility, that place of heaven on earth. Why do we need to go through hell to get to heaven or do we? Um, apparently, some people don't necessarily have to. Lucky few. You know, every once in a while you meet them and they just seem to be getting everything right. Very kind of a thing. But I do think of it in, uh, in terms of having to uh, experience that absolute humility, where all the material um, uh, expectations, judgments, comparisons, um, identifications, all of those things are forced away. They fall away. They crumble. Mm -hmm. and, and then you are delivered to this place of a, a pure experience of your authentic being. Um, for some people, uh, it's unbelievably horrible circumstances that they are born into and that they live this life in. It's just mm -hmm. unimaginable, you know, when you look around the world, the kinds of terrible things that are happening, totally unjustified, the injustices yeah. and the horrors that take place in this life. 
And for others, like I said, you know, they just seem to step into magic and they, everything mm-hmm. goes great. And, they, <laughs> you know, they live in a wonderful. So it, it is this, this wild range of being that is um, based, I think, on our own individual spiritual, individual and collective spiritual evolution, as it were. And the recognition of each individual uh, of, you know, why I'm going through this pain and what's on the other side. I always like to say, oh, if you're going through hell, keep going. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's the main lesson. Don't stop. <laughs> that's why we have to go through hell. Yeah. And, you know, mm. and some people do stop and they get caught and they get stuck mm. uh, there and it never ends well. When you continue to go through hell, you know, when you continue to persevere and to have faith as an operative action in your life, where you know that there is this evidence in your life that things do work out well, most of the time, 98% of what I uh, fear never comes to pass. And the other 2% is uncomfortable for a while and may even be painful um, for a while, but it passes too. All things pass. Yes. So let's talk about another concept that you address in your books. Life's ultimate challenge, spiritual principles and the physical reality, the angel and the devil on our shoulders. Yeah, the icons of the angel and the devil. Well, you know, that's those are the two forms of ego. I mean, you know, we have, for want of a better word, we group this under the rubric of ego. I like to talk about it in terms of spiritual technology and of it as being like an operating system, right? And so you have like windows for the spirit. Kind of. That's your interface with this world. Um, if you have a negative ego, it's come so conveniently to me. It comes so spontaneous. I can imagine all kinds of horrible things about, uh, God forbid, about people or, you know, Things going on in the world. I mean, immediately I can have all kinds of negative uh, sort of alternatives to what's actually happening, my take on it. Um, and then the world reflects, reflects that back to you. The way you see the world is the way the world sees you kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is, uh, there is that sort of painful necessity uh, that takes place. What would you think is, in your view, the biggest challenge for us? Um, I think that the biggest challenge is escaping the the material identification. You know, um, I, I I like to liken this to a life experience that I've had a lot, which is that of being a struggling human trying to get his way trying to make things work the way that I think they should. And maybe, you know, good ideas and, you know, well-meaning things, uh, but it just being difficult, endlessly difficult. But every once in a while, when I'm sitting on a rock or when I'm smiling at a baby or I'm catching a beautiful sunset or something, I will have this tra- transcendent, this sense of transcendent unity uh, where for a moment I tap in to this field of being, this loving, intelligent matrix of being that I, I talk about. 
And then I'm back. Then I come back to earth and I have to do the laundry and I've got a phone call that I don't want to, you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Then switching that equation. And instead of being a human who's struggling to occasionally experience moments of spiritual unity, flipping that and experiencing life as a unified spiritual being who then has to engage in these aspects of difficult human materiality for a while, right? I've got to get my car insured again. <laughs> you know, I have to go to the doctor because I have yeah. arthritis in my hip. You know, I got to engage with this and I have to mm. show up uh, with perspective and, and presence and hopefully some mm. purpose too, because I need to function as well as I can. Mm, beautiful. Well, Robert, I could be speaking with you for hours and listening to you for hours, but unfortunately, uh, the time is catching up with us. <laughs> so as a final thought, could you please tell us about your work, how people can contact you? What are your offerings? I know that you are writing your third book, so perhaps if you could tell us a bit more about it. And obviously, I will include all the links in the show notes, but just how people could engage with you. Sure. Well, the... Um... The easiest uh, way probably is through my blog, which is robertkopecki.blogspot.com. That's where I publish uh, new pieces and stuff. And I, I curate that through uh, um, Facebook uh, sometimes and definitely through Twitter. Robert Kopecki 3 is uh, my Facebook or my uh, Twitter. Um, if you go to, uh, I, I also have a website that updates when I'm going to be speaking in places and has links to my books and to my blog. Um, and my email's on there, so I'm always available uh, to people, too. Um, I have no problem with with all of that. The next book, um, The Zen of Near Death, you may have noticed with each of, each of my uh, previous two books that, that in a way I'm trying to escape the uh, confining sort of definition of near-death experience. To me, the near-death experience is showing us something about a greater spiritual technology that we're participating in. And so I'm always trying to uh, reach over to span that and to talk about what that spiritual technology really is and how we can live it without having to have a near-death experience. That's what happened to yes. me. <laughs> And, and I find near-death experience fascinating and stuff, but there are other, there are other places that you can go uh, for very comprehensive information. About mm. The International Association for Near-Death Studies, whom I have spoken for so many times, they have a great website, thousands of near-death experiences and resources. Mm -hmm. um, but the next book, The Zen of Near-Death, is really uh, just about that, is that kind of Zen practicality about what this all means. You know, you'll ask, well, is it a dual nature, you know, the angel or the devil on yeah. your shoulder uh, kind of thing? Well, yes, it is, <laughs> is the answer to that, right? <laughs> okay. It is. It's all of that. 
And, yeah. and, and the, the concepts like um, water finds its greatest power by seeking its lowest point mm-hmm. or uh, chopping wood and carrying water, yeah. you know, that we just do the simplest things sometimes are the most profound in our lives. That those elements of Zen, I think, is kind of how things have sort of started to crystallize for me in considering the, what these experiences meant. Mm-hmm. And when is it due to come out? Gee, I don't know. I'm I'm still in the process. Okay, so we can keep in touch with you through your website and blog, etc. Yeah, the first two books had a real immediate. I I really felt like I needed to get them out. Mm-hmm. You know? to help people with this issue around death, around fears around death, and then to give people a kind of a, a comprehensive way to experience heaven without having, having to have mm-hmm. a near-death experience, <laughs> you know, because it's available in this life. It yes. Definitely is. Yes, we don't need to go through all the dramas and traumas and, and pain. There is a better way. So, Robert, thank you so much. You have given us a lot of insights, a lot of great pearls of wisdom and a lot of information. But I still would like to ask you if you could somehow distill (laughs) all that and what would be your key message, key takeaway that you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, that this life is about experiencing love, right? that it's about removing the obstacles to love so that it can present itself to us, so that it can guide us through everything that we do with everyone we know, so that we can experience it all around us, coming through us, expressing itself, flowing into us, uh, expressing itself in all the forms around us, you know, beauty and friendship and all of these things. So, Really, it is that. It's it's removing the obstacles to love, whatever they may be, childhood trauma or bad experiences of different kinds, uh, physical difficulties, uh, all these things of a material nature. We can still um, find great purpose in that effort to remove the obstacles to love in our life. Beautiful. Removing all the debris so that the river can flow. That's right. I just got this visual. <laughs> <laughs> clearing As out you were speaking <laughs> clearing out the log jam <laughs> uh, well robert it's been such a pleasure thank you so much for your beautiful wisdom and sharing your amazing experiences and i wish you all the best with your third book i can't wait to read it as well and i will post all the all the links and information in the show notes thank you so much robert Well, thank you so much, Anna. It's been a great, great pleasure for me, too. Uh, It's really nice to spend this time with you. And boy, we talked about a lot of stuff. Yes, and we... I think we covered covered everything. No, we barely scratched the surface. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. That's all for today, folks. If you enjoyed the show, please post a review on Apple Podcasts to encourage others to listen to it and lift the spirit across the world and the universe. For the show notes and contact details, please go to my Quantum Living Podcast on podpage.com. I'm your host, Anna Anderson. 
thank you for listening. I look forward to connecting with you on the next episode of Quantum Living. Until then, be well.